Hi, I'm Felix Marquardt, and this is Behind the Spine. And I'm your host, Mark Haywood. This is the podcast that finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. In this series, we're adopting a different formula from what we've done before. We'll interview six guests, edit, script, and produce each episode and broadcast as normal. But after each interview, we'll dive deeper into one particular aspect of that conversation. Last week, I spoke with Felix about his book, The New Nomads. It was a fascinating conversation and many things have stuck with me. One in particular was how Felix talked about the nature of addiction. Because I, I, I believe we've become addicted to carbon and to growth and to extraction, uh, domination and to othering and to certain narratives... I don't want to blame the people at the top of the pyramid for being the blind who lead the blind because they're blind. They're addicts. Chapter one, the rye in the catcher. The scent and smoke and sweat of a casino are nauseating at three in the morning. Then the sole erosion produced by high gambling a compost of greed and fear and nervous tension becomes unbearable and the senses awake and revolt from it. James Bond suddenly knew that he was tired. The opening of Ian Fleming's Casino Royale, written in 1953, despite what the character James Bond went on to become, this is how Fleming originally conceived him. For all the glamour and fast cars, Bond was an addict, addicted to many things, perhaps even controlled by them. In 2015, I presented a paper at the Crime Fiction, Traditions and Transgressions Conference. It was about the portrayal and use of addiction in fiction, in particular, crime fiction. The title of my paper, The Rye in the Catcher, was taken from a cocktail recipe book that had been inspired by great literary works of fiction. The Rye in the Catcher isn't the best chapter heading in the book. That honour goes to the book's title, Tequila Mockingbird. As funny as that sounds, addiction is deadly serious. In May 1948, W. H. Auden's essay, The Guilty Vicarage, was published in Harper's Magazine. It opens with a confession. For me, as for many others, the reading of detective stories is an addiction like tobacco or alcohol. The symptoms of this are, firstly, the intensity of the craving. If I have any work to do, I must be careful not to get hold of a detective story, for once I begin one, I cannot work or sleep till I have finished it. Secondly, its specificity. The story must conform to certain formulas. I find it very difficult, for example, to read one that is not set in rural England. And thirdly, its immediacy. I forget the story as soon as I've finished it and have no wish to read it again. If, as sometimes happens, I start reading one and find after a few pages that I've read it before, I cannot go on. Such reactions convince me that, in my case at least, detective stories have nothing to do with the works of art. It is possible, however, that an analysis of the detective story, i.e. of the kind of detective story I enjoy, may throw light not only on its magical function, but also, by contrast, on the function of art. 
The essay's subheading is notes on the detective story by an addict, and reading it from a distance of over 70 years got me thinking about what draws us to crime fiction. Auden was a self-confessed crime fiction fanatic, and whilst I've long understood the appeal of crime fiction, I've always thought it odd that we're drawn to its characters. An astonishing amount of them suffer from addiction in one form or another. James Bond by Fleming is addicted to pretty much everything. Harry Hole by Joe Nesbo, John Rebus by Ian Rankin and Inspector Morse by Colin Dexter all struggle with the bottle, but they sell in their millions. Philip Marlowe by Raymond Chandler and Sam Spade by Dashiell Hammett both chain smoke and both have plenty of booze in their office desks. Sherlock Holmes by Conan Doyle takes drugs and both Temperance Brennan by Kathy Reich and Kurt Wallander by Henning Mankell are recovering alcoholics or in some way in denial about being one. Stephen J. Swartz's Hayden Glass comes with the following health warning. LAPD detective Hayden Glass has only one vice. The girls who work the streets he's vowed to protect. Everything about that tagline screams hard-boiled, and the character has been unsurprisingly popular. The question is why? Behind the Spine is an attempt to inspire you to write and to shine a light on things that might provide a creative spark for your stories. Now we want to go one stage further. We want to offer you an outlet for your work. Over the course of the show, we've uncovered dozens of lessons that have been extracted from over 50 fascinating conversations. We've picked three, and we'd like you to narrow this down to one. Pick one of the lessons we've selected and write a short story of no more than a thousand words and send it to us. At the end of the series, we'll pick two winners. We'll pay each writer £250 for the right to use their story as part of series four. Go to behindthespine.co.uk and click on writing competition for more details. But now, back to the show. Chapter two. Start with why. Why do we find ourselves drawn to characters who suffer from addiction? Is it because we love flawed characters who make decisions we disagree with? Does addiction have some form of literary currency? Are we drawn to the jeopardy of a daily battle with addiction? Or to look at it another way, is it lazy writing? Where does the line get drawn in terms of how much addiction is too much or too lazy? Haven't we seen the chain-smoking detective with a bottle of scotch in the desk drawer enough? Do we really need to see that again? Maybe, or maybe not, that's your job as a writer to find new ways to convey a fresh sense of perspective. There are many things humans could be addicted to. What have you not read or not seen that might be the basis for your next character or story? And as we've said repeatedly on this show, always take a look at what's happening around you. A recent academic paper published in the journal Addiction looked at the prevalence of smoking and drinking in adults. It said that, quote, the first COVID-19 lockdown in England in March to July 2020 was associated with increased smoking prevalence among younger adults and an increased prevalence of high-risk drinking among all sociodemographic groups. Specifically, it said that there was a 25% rise in 18 to 34-year-olds who smoke, resulting in more than 650,000 new smokers among the age group. 
you may be tempted to explore what looks like the main narrative thread of this research, namely that the number of young people who smoke had increased by a quarter during lockdown. Now that might lead you to explore what is driving this. Has lockdown led to an increased sense of anxiety, which in turn has caused young people to seek a release in the form of nicotine? Or does it have more to do with control? I am unable to do many things because of lockdown. Therefore, I will take control by doing things I am able to do, despite the potentially damaging side effects. These are good exercises for writers to tackle. Both will lead to strong narrative threads. But the report also contains another compelling finding. It found increases in the number of smokers quitting successfully. Researchers from University College London and the University of Sheffield said there was a 99% rise in people across all groups successfully quitting during lockdown compared with pre-pandemic. Start with why. What has driven that spectacular increase? It may be too easy to reach the, in this case, bad news story about young people. And in fact, most news outlets did just that. But last week, Felix did something fascinating. He turned the whole notion of addiction on its head by talking about our behaviour. He talked about us being addicted, sick and controlled by our illness. Being angry at an addict for being an addict is, is like being angry at someone for having diabetes. Doesn't make sense. These people are just addicts. This is not people being jackasses. It's people being sick. We have a tendency to use data points to prove a point we want to make, rather than to truly learn. That's why I went back and read the whole academic report. I didn't want to be controlled by the headline. I wanted to find a deeper truth. Sometimes, though, a deeper truth is a much more concerning truth. The notion that we are all in some way addicts is not one that sits comfortably but that's why Felix talked about the way the executives at Davos tried to frame Abdi's story as in some way being their own success and not his. The people in Davos assumed that the most amazing thing about Abdi's trajectory was that he had gone from a rural part of sub-Saharan Africa to them. It was all about them. It's like the finish line of your journey, the most amazing thing about your story is that you're here with us. And he knew better. He just knew better. That's also why the utter hypocrisy of coffee culture goes untouched. Nobody shines a light on the huge number of carbon miles that coffee beans have travelled to find their way into our planet-saving, conscience-easing, reusable keep cups. The light isn't shone because we're all, if Felix is right, addicts. Let me ask you a question, or perhaps pose a narrative thread. Have you ever been watching a TV program where Netflix asks you, are you still watching? Now, according to Netflix's own website, this prompt appears after watching three episodes of a TV show in a row without using any video controls, or after 90 minutes of uninterrupted watching, whichever is greater. In their official statement, they do this so, quote, you don't lose your place or use internet data if you're not actually watching a TV show or movie. Now, that's probably true. But if you've ever been on the receiving end of that message, you'll know there's also an alternative narrative. Maybe, just maybe, watching television or binge-watching television isn't as good for us as we might think. Why does the phrase binge-drinking convey a different tone to binge-watching Whatever we're binging, 
we're still binging it. We realised and accepted that allowing tobacco companies to sponsor sport wasn't desirable, so we banned them from doing so, a move gratefully accepted by online gambling companies who took their place. We realised and accepted that binge drinking wasn't desirable, so we pushed the problem onto the consumer by asking them to drink responsibly. Felix's comments about behaviour are good ones. Behaviour like this is, if you think about it, part of the problem, not part of the solution. Awareness doesn't really help you with addiction. You know, I, I, there came a point uh, where I became acutely aware that snorting copious amounts of white powder was not good for my relation with myself. It wasn't good for my relation with my kids or back then it was my kid. It wasn't good for my relationship with my partners, my loved ones. It wasn't good for my career. Did all that awareness allow me to stop sniffing cocaine? In no way whatsoever. So I needed to come to my knees. I needed to be brought to my rock bottom. The only thing that changes human behavior meaningfully and in a lasting way, is pain. Then there is addiction on what you might call an institutional level. In August 2018, President Trump signed into law the National Defense Authorization Act. The act laid out the funding plan for U.S. military operations for the 2019 fiscal year. It contained a small, barely noticeable provision for something that's been a problem for decades. The provision required problem gambling screening for members of the armed forces. The National Council on Problem Gambling estimated that over 50,000 active duty military personnel were problem gamblers out of a total of more than a million servicemen and women. The Department of Defense reported that only 120 active military sought treatment for problem gambling in 2017. About 10% of veterans using Veterans Affairs services are problem gamblers, according to the National Council on Problem Gambling. And here's why. There are more than 2,000 slot machines on more than 60 overseas bases. The Department of Defense generates $100 million each year from active duty military personnel playing on those slot machines. None of the money goes towards problem gambling treatment. We love to think of ourselves as a very science and reason-based civilization. We should question this fantastical notion that humans use reason to change their behavior, to decide how to act. Humans use reason to rationalize their behavior, not to change it. As a writer, always start with why. Because however uncomfortable and unnerving the answer, that's your story. Chapter 3. Soundscape. Addiction is a rich, tragic, heartbreaking narrative. Literal and metaphorical highs and lows run through it, making it easy to see why writers return to it often. But if you subscribe to the notion that there are no new stories, just new ways of telling them, then you may need to work hard to develop a fresh perspective. One of the best addiction story pitches I ever heard was from a screenwriter who pitched a feature film idea about zombie rehab. The characters were all recovering zombies and were going through the rehab process as if they were addicted to drugs, drink or gambling. It was new and funny, 
but also tragic and heartbreaking. The generosity and candour with which Felix spoke about his addiction was fascinating. I've heard others speak about their struggles in similar ways, but I've never thought so deeply about the notion of addiction and how it could manifest itself in daily life. Once it manifests itself, it takes over, finds new ways to thrive and survive, one of the most shocking being our own behaviour, our own point-blank refusal to look the monster in the eye. As writers, then, how might you use this in your work? To help provide some inspiration in each of these specials, we will end with a soundscape inspired by the subject matter. It's an attempt to tell a complete story in as short a time period as possible, namely, one minute. Today, we've tried to tackle the dark side of addiction. In most situations, the habits which become addictions start out as a bit of fun, a way of letting loose or indulging in the party lifestyle. After all, James Bond does make it look glamorous. But as we heard earlier... That glamour fades and begins to erode the soul. The stench of addiction can become all-consuming, leaving you feeling exhausted. This soundscape highlights how activities that start off being fun can so easily end up becoming warped, distorted and unrecognisable. What lessons did you take away from our conversation with Felix? Share them with me by sending an email to info at behindthespine.co.uk. Your thoughts will be featured in a special episode at the end of the series. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood, and next week I'll be speaking to BAFTA-nominated film director Jules Williamson. Remember to give us a like and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine, and Instagram as at Behind the Spine Podcast. Goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing. This podcast is produced by Oli Giyu Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.